Welcome to the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We've talked about a number of issues on this show, health IT, of course, and we've also spent a lot of time on health inequity and the disparities in access to health care, which was really evident during the pandemic. It is therefore timely that today we have Dr. Vindel Washington, Chief Clinical Officer of the Verily Health Platforms Group and CEO of Onduo, to talk to us with today about how IT might be used to mitigate those inequities in healthcare access and in care. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments, Z-E-L-I-S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy. That's W-E-D-I. Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And we're very excited to have on our show today, Dr. Vindel Washington. Dr. Washington, as I said, is Chief Clinical Officer of the Verily Health Platforms Group and CEO of Onduo. Dr. Washington previously served as Chief Medical Officer and EVP at Blue Cross Blue Shield of Louisiana. And prior to that, he was National Coordinator for Health Information Technology. That's the ONC under HHS. Findle received his medical degree from University of Virginia and a master's degree in healthcare management from the Harvard University School of Public Health. Dr. Washington, welcome, and so very glad to have you here on The Collective Voice. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm very happy to be here. Very good. So uh, before we dive into uh, health IT and, and healthcare uh, inequities, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, where you came from. How, how did you uh, come to be, uh, uh, how, how, well, how did you get your interest in, in medicine, first of all, and then how did that transform into how health IT, health IT uh, works within that, that context? Well, um, it's a long time ago, so I'll sort of dust off the memories as it were. <laughs> Um, I would say my journey into medicine uh, was probably pretty linear. I had an interest in science as a kid. Um, I uh, both was and am a spiritual person. I felt like the opportunity to serve in that space and the ability to sort of use science in that in that way was particularly appealing. Um, I had some opportunities to come up and really after doing some shadowing work and, and seeing a little bit closer to how that watch worked, I was super excited about the opportunity and, and uh, really uh, enjoyed um, all of my time at the bedside uh, caring for people and trying to do my best to help them live better lives. Very good. Very good. Uh, you know, looking at your experience, um, you see the the medical element. Um, you were chief medical officer and chief clinical officer of a number of different organizations, but you also have this kind of management and actually CEO uh, experience as well, um, which I, I don't think we see very often. Um, so talk about how that uh, how those two relate to each other and maybe complement each other or maybe don't complement each other. Maybe sometimes <laughs> there's conflict, right? Um, yeah, I, I think... Um, to be very direct about it, I actually think it is a benefit to um, to have spent many years at the bedside when it comes to charting strategy, pointing the direction for an organization. Even some of the things you learn in small group leadership settings, like the emergency department when it comes to leading teams, I think is particularly helpful. Those aren't skills that are 
strictly medical skills. They're skills that are necessary to work well in those environments, but clearly not just medical skills. I would say for me, in some ways, it was a little bit circuitous. Um, I uh, went to college on an ROTC scholarship, and so I had time just after medical school that I uh, served uh, in the military. And uh, in the military, sort of being a military officer as part of that work uh, and having early assignments that were leadership assignments, running um, literally running an emergency department in urgent care um, less than six months out of residency, um, put the opportunity in front of me. And I will say, uh, thanks to good old Uncle Sam, there was also a fair bit of, of training and education that went along with that to uh, teach the skills that were necessary to be successful in those jobs. And I found that, um, for me at least, knowing the why and having some uh, hand on the tiller in terms of the direction that the department was going and the effect that that had on me at the bedside was particularly uh, rewarding. And so once I sort of got a taste of it early in my career, I, I um, did not really see much of a dichotomy in trying to pursue both sides of the house, both gaining clinical skills and, and being more proficient in that space, but also learning how to uh, lead people to um, execute, develop and execute on strategy. And those things have served me well as I've uh, uh, matured in my career. Very good. Uh, thank you for serving. And I think what's terrific is that idea of, um, you know, as a CEO, you've got to manage the day to day. You've got to keep the factory working. Uh, but certainly the the cool hand that you need uh, in emergency situations and in clinical situations. Right. Uh, that certainly yeah. and how to how to interact with people in those emergency situations. That's a CEO's job as well is to put out fires and you need a cool hand to do that. And make sure people don't lose their heads. Right. Absolutely. One of the early um, lessons I think I learned at the bedside is um, in a time of crisis, everyone takes their cue from the person who's at the head of the bed, which is you know where the emergency medicine physician stands when a trauma comes in. So literally, um, uh, if you are the person who has lost your head, you can rest assured the rest of the room is not going to work particularly well. And to the point you're making, I think... Um, you know, one of the old sayings from many years ago is when you uh, have a crisis moment in the hospital, the first pulse you should take is your own, uh, is, is uh, I think, probably works in the boardroom as well when you're trying to analyze critical um, options that, that affect your company uh, and, and, and could have uh, either great or devastating effects. I think making those decisions with a cool head uh, is the right path. Right, right. I love that motto. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write that down and stick it to my desk. That's, that's terrific. Um, so, you know, uh, this country actually just went through a crisis, right? Uh, pandemic. Um, it's arguable uh, whether cool hells prevailed, but uh, it seems like we're, we're uh, steady on the rudder. One, one thing that certainly was came out in the pandemic was the disparities and inequities in healthcare access in this country and healthcare care. I know that's a, a passion of yours. Um, can we can we talk about that a little bit in terms of the pandemic? What is what what did we find with the pandemic in terms of those inequities? And then um, and what can health IT do in those cases? What can health IT do to mitigate it? I think I think your framing on that is perfect. I, I think the framing that you put in the question of saying that. Um, things were uncovered or laid bare and the pandemic is the right framing. 
I would say as a person who's been concerned about health equity for a fairly long period of time, um, it's not that those things were new. It's not that many of those aspects were unknown. Um, uh, and uh, the Obama administration, we did some discussion around um, a path toward uh, health for the country, um, Healthy 2020, that was sort of uh, put out and we referenced and we sort of looked at that, that framework. One of the things that's clear is that a lot of the elements on a healthy population really are not direct care aspects. In fact, some of those documents, I think we had as little as 10% of a population's health was related to the direct care. What happened when I crossed the door of a care facility? There, there's obviously a fair bit of your health that, that comes from um, things that you have a predisposition to, sort of your, your um, genetic makeup, et cetera. But there, that leaves a whole swath of items that are much more related to the social aspects of one's life. And am I, am I in a safe, a safe space? Uh, um, my health literacy, uh, my, my job security, um, and, and to the framework you put forward, what happened in the pandemic, many of those elements were just laid bare. And so some of us were particularly lucky. We were able to sort of, um, when, the, when the verdict came that we should sort of lay low, uh, we had an opportunity to work from home. We had an opportunity to um, use some of our savings if we needed. We uh, were not sort of put on the front line when that was the most dangerous time, except for obviously those who were providing direct care. There were a lot of options for a lot of uh, Americans. Disproportionately, though, in um, brown and black communities, those opportunities were not present. And so the stress, if you look at the the uh, rate that um, that COVID was acquired, if you look at the death rates in those communities, they're disproportionately um, concentrated in those areas. Um, and if you talk about health equity, you talk about access to care, some of those items have been present for a very long time. So the punchline, I think, on your question is, is there a role for technology to play in this space? And I would say unequivocally, yes. I would say unequivocally, yes. If you were to say to me, um, is there an option or, or, or a possibility that things could go the wrong way? And I would also say unequivocally, yes. And so for, for me, if you think about things like um, access to virtual care, if you think about things like um, some of the digital phenotyping and the concentration of resources where they're most needed, all of those things could, if deployed correctly, reduce the disparities of care. On the other hand, if you deploy them uh, inartfully, you could also end up in a situation where you expand those disparities and most of those advancements could sort of land squarely in the laps of the haves. And so from my perspective, um, I'm looking for solutions that actually lift all boats. And, and it's not that I have any qualms of having the person who's getting A care in the country today getting A plus care. I think that's all great. But I'm particularly interested in folks who are getting no care or C or D care, moving those folks up the pyramid by addressing some of these things that technology is particularly good at, doing things at scale, this personalization and scale idea, bringing things like telemedicine, um, and particularly the way that we do telemedicine um, to, to folks uh, in a time and place of their convenience. I'm particularly interested in us making sure that we do that well. Uh, very good. And so uh, before we go to the, the concept of um, 
that you, you implied there of lifting all boats, right? Things that will help um, all populations. Can you give us some examples of where health IT might go wrong? I mean, what comes to mind is um, if we if we go fully digital, thinking that this is going to give better access to health and better healthcare um, outcomes, but uh, much of the population doesn't have adequate broadband or doesn't have the technology or the money to buy the technology to keep up, then that that seems to me one of those examples. Yeah. Are there other examples? Yeah where good intentions may lead to more disparities. Absolutely, absolutely. So you hit on one, which um, we are particularly focused on, and, and that is if, for example, I provide a digital service and it requires high speed and you can only access it from, you know, some system that costs, you know, a thousand bucks to put in your pocket, et cetera, then by definition, you know that you're going to uh, skew the populations that you can serve because all the demographic data that we have says that not every person in the country has that kind of disposable income. So your approach needs to be an approach that looks at the entire population and designs a product that fits that population. So it's one of the things we're particularly proud at at Verily, and it comes directly from my alphabet heritage, this idea of product inclusivity. We have to make sure that as we're doing the design that, for example, if you know that, and this is the case in our country, that many people have access to smartphones, but they may not have very expensive plans. They may have uh, phones that uh, have slow processing power. They may not have any access to the app stores that exist because those require credit cards. So the question is, how do you design a product that uses web delivery, low bandwidth, um, doesn't require a lot of data to, to access. And we particularly pay attention to that space and making sure that what we deliver uh, can meet those needs. I think the other really obvious sort of place, as I mentioned before, what we're doing in terms of digital phenotyping and predictive modeling, I think this is a particularly risky place if you do not do this well. So at the core of predictive modeling, what you're trying to do is you're trying to look at things that have happened in the past and you're trying to predict what things might happen in the future. And um, you can build in bias to your own algorithm if you're not careful in the way the algorithm is built. And one way to make sure that you don't build in bias is to be very cognizant of your algorithms and humble in the output and the, and the uh, development that you put forward. And so um, uh, that's one. We have to do the design in such a way that doesn't build in our inherent bias. The second, which may not be as obvious, or third, I guess, the third that may not be as obvious is that if you talk about the kinds of unique sensing devices, et cetera, that we use, um, and, you're, and you're thinking about product inclusivity, it means a couple of things. If you're using things that use isoelectric sensors, if you're using things that um, measure, um, for example, oxygen saturation or some other, some other component that you're using that um, is, is made you know, for individuals, the questions you have to ask yourselves is, who's in your test group? Who have you used to sort of develop the technology? Um, uh, were they thin or were they not thin or were they um, tall or short? Was their skin brown or not brown? And so you find out sometimes if, if your test populations are too homogeneous, even the smart devices that you develop are not smart devices that work equally well in all settings. Um, now, there's a pretty um, famous example of um, some facial recognition software um, that that from a few years back where um, it was just not really good at recognizing uh, black and brown faces. And 
it's not necessarily because of a bias of the machine. It's a bias of how you taught the machine to recognize and who you trained on and what was in the group that was there. And so we are particularly zoned in on making sure that we don't fall into those obvious traps around um, building algorithms that worsen um, the, the attention that's paid, that we're really concentrating on the tools that we deliver and that we take into account things like trust, health literacy, and the like. There's one other point, if I can add about this, which I'm particularly passionate about is, you know, one of the things that's probably behind the scenes when you talk about a company like Onduo um, uh, or Verily is um, you've got to not just deliver the technology, but the technology comes inside of an ecosystem, a health ecosystem. And so you have to pay attention to what are the um, drivers of trust in those systems. How do I actually approach individuals and do I have a culturally competent way to approach individuals? So one of the examples I use, we, we know in behavioral science, one of the things that motivates people or can motivate people is the voice of authority. And so if I say to you, four out of five, you know, highly respected physicians say do X, that can be really compelling, but it's not universally compelling. If you have an inherent distrust of the system, saying four or five of the people in the system you don't trust say do something is not necessarily a motivator. But heaven knows there are other motivators that motivate folks in communities in all kinds of different ways. Um, we found in some of our work, some of the motivators mean that you actually have to find who are the trusted voices in the community. The trusted voice in the community may be the rabbi or the pastor. It may not be the, um, the healthcare institution that represents the big ivory tower down the street. And so your approach is not just around the tech, it's around the last mile of delivery. So we've thought a lot about messaging. We've thought a lot about the delivery piece. Um, often what happens is, um, uh, and, and particularly in, in certain communities, you find that um, the community trust is driven by whether folks in the community um, have had success in a particular space. And this is a so-called uh, so social proof. The social proof concept in behavioral science sort of says that if I find that my neighbor and my neighbor's neighbor are doing these things and it's working for them, I can be um, you know, properly motivated to do X, Y, Z. The other is a public declaration, right? So one of the things we use is we use uh, coaches. So if I say to you as a coach, if I say to you, I'm going to eat better, um, I will likely eat better if I've said it, I've made a pact with another human rather than if I have done this sort of in the privacy of my own sort of, uh, of space. So for us, it's not just the tech, which we've talked a little bit about. It's this whole system of delivery that we have to leverage and think about differently. And what I mean by like, um, how does that work in different communities? It's having enough humility to say, even though these three messages, I'm in Louisiana now. So even though these three messages uh, uh, worked in the garden district, they may not work um, in you know, New Orleans East or some other place, right? Like we, we have to have um, we have to have some degree of humility to say that um, scaling the tech solution actually means personalization at scale, as opposed to just bringing the same solution to every community in the same way with the same messenger, as if they're just robotic communities that exist in society. 
we are one of the unique places, I believe, as an alphabet um, uh, um, sort of uh, D, uh, with a, com- a company with alphabet DNA who has really spent decades thinking about this concept of, of product inclusivity and how do you actually scale in such a way that is respectful of the communities you're trying to serve and recognize that those differences aren't just mildly important. They're the difference between whether or not your product is accepted and can do the very wonderful things that you've designed it to do in the first place. This is, these are, <laughs> you've touched on so many great points. I, I, I almost don't know where to start, but I think, yes. you know, what you said about, um, what you said about you know that last mile of delivery and 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 speaking to the audience and speaking to the community on a very community community level, not just region of the right, but we're we're looking we're seeing it now with the vaccines, right? Absolutely, like it's all about the delivery. Who the voice of authority is in those communities? Who's telling them that it's the right thing to do? Uh, that's Absolutely. how it. Really, really fascinating, um, and 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 I want to go back because I, I love this concept of product inclusivity. And and what you're saying is, not only do you have to program the product uh, uh, to make sure that there's no inherent biases, uh, right? And and that's you know every science fiction uh, movie out there is that you you program the robots to actually <laughs> do something horrible that you didn't know, and it's always a human mistake, right? Uh, yeah. So inherent biases there, um, and then also, you know, that the user's experience is is not also inherently biased. And then finally, who's telling um, who's yeah. telling uh, the community, specific community, to trust this IT, right, or trust yes. that you know this is not not going to steal your your data and go someplace. Is it, so that's that's the, is that the full definition of product inclusivity? Am I missing something there with that? No, no, I, and I love the way that you've sort of uh, laid it out in the discrete buckets. I, um, uh, you know, when we talk about designing and delivering for all, um, it's just making sure you start with that broad definition of all. Um, and there's so many approaches in healthcare. There's so many approaches in health IT, which almost by definition uh, get delivered to the narrow. Um, I'll share one statistic that might be interesting um, to illustrate the point. So when I was with Blue Cross of Louisiana, we looked at um, our membership and we used some broad studies to sort of make some guesses as to, you know, what were the assets that our members had as we were talking about co-pays and program design, et cetera. So the result that stuck with me was about 30% of the population uh, in the in the survey work had zero dollars at the end of the month that they would consider their um, disposable income. About another 30% had $300 or less. And um, then the rest had obviously more than 300 bucks. And so from my perspective, if you're designing solutions and you're bringing them to market, you have to be cognizant of the populations you serve. If two thirds of your population have $300 or less um, of disposable income a month, it is just not reasonable to think that someone's going to spend $150, $200, whatever the amount is on a sort of uh, an accessory, unless the assumption is that accessory is. Um, uh, is only going to be delivered to this niche group. And so when we think about solutions, we think about um, broad payment structures. We think about government as a source of healthcare uh, payment. We think about, um, you know, the, the value proposition, not just to the individual, but to employers in the space. 
And I promise you, if you'd come to me 25 years ago and talked about medicine and cost and payment, it was kind of a shoulder shrug to me. I was so concentrated on making sure that diagnoses were right and that we had great treatments, et cetera. But ignoring, um, again, how the payment system works, ignoring how individuals are going to access this thing. So I made this great diagnosis for you. I've given you this great prescription for a med. And I have no idea what happens afterward. But the minute I give it to you and you walk over to the pharmacy, you know that the copay is too high and you know that you're not going to fill that prescription. Who has that really helped? Um, and and so that's another aspect of this that I think is sort of critical as we think about, um, you know, the delivery system and who you're designing so, so designing for. So product inclusivity has to include some aspect of who it is you're prescribing it to, what are the assets that they have, what's the effect of using this going to be on them and their families, um, have you designed it from an approachable tech perspective? Have you designed it from a community and a trust perspective? Um, does it fit a cost structure? Um, and, and that's really the only way to have uh, products that are um, that, that can be ubiquitous and that are particularly useful. Otherwise, you pretty quickly end up in a sub-segment and you miss a large portion of the population that could, be, that could benefit from your services. Yeah. Uh, it's interesting you bring up the, that that kind of uh, bifurcation of healthcare and the good of healthcare and getting access to people and then the price and, and the cost of healthcare because uh, we're we're seeing the transparency rules come forward and and I was yes. just in a CMS meeting yesterday and all the providers were like we don't know whether they're insured we don't know what their price is we're just trying to get them better right we're just they're in the emergency room we don't we're yeah. we can't give them an estimate of what this is going to cost we're just yeah. trying to get things done right we're going to make them better and so it's interesting that providers now being forced perhaps um, to start thinking about that just just as a, as a, as a requirement but but also perhaps this is good because you have to know who you're talking to and whether your care yeah. will be taken if they're if they're not going to walk across the street and buy the drug because they don't have the 10 bucks then They'll, you'll yeah. see them in the emergency room two weeks later. So yeah, your uh, point's well made. Your point's well made. Great point. Um, uh, I did want to go back to uh, I have never heard this term alphabet company. You're an alphabet company. Oh, <laughs> um, I might get the year wrong, so I might need to come back and sort of clarify that. But I think the year was 2015 when uh, Google um, became Alphabet. Oh, okay. Uh, okay. And then um, uh, and. There were several bets that were placed, uh, Waymo and and uh, other spinoffs at that time. And Verily is one of the bets. It's the life sciences bet. Before that had been uh, Google Life Sciences. And then uh, within uh, Verily, you mentioned a couple of components. There's the uh, Verily Health Platforms piece, which um, is the portion I'm a part of, which is mostly front um, uh frontline sort of delivery strategies. There is the devices group. There is the um, the uh, clinical studies platform uh, that is really around um, a research baseline and that sort of groups. And so, so uh, yeah, so um, th I think there's a common DNA among all of the bets that were made at that time. Um, I think about our core principles, like the very first one comes almost directly from um, Alphabet Central, which is do more good. <laughs> and I think that the do more good sort of component also feeds very well into this product inclusivity piece we've been talking about. But yeah, that's the that's the reference to Alphabet. 
Very good. Very good. And I'm sorry I didn't catch that reference. I thought it might have been another a social term that, you know, my kids had learned in TikTok yesterday and I wasn't being told. What it meant. <laughs> so, well, I promise you on the hip factor, if it's a new term on TikTok, I'm not the guy who could educate you on it. So it's, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> much as I would like to know more about this space, I promise you I'm not that guy. So <laughs> very good. Very good. Uh, well, so I, I think what's interesting about the the not the intrusion, but the the entrance of of, of Google and uh, Alphabet and and you know and then broaden it to non traditionally healthcare yeah. Uh, yeah. companies. They're very knowledgeable about the the consumer themselves, right down yeah. to the point of they know what kind of shirt I want to buy next week before I know, right. Um, and so talk about a little bit about that because there's been a lot of talk with both the transparency interoperability rules of third parties coming in, and these are non-healthcare third parties, at least that's how they're being labeled, right, yeah. who are coming into a space that, you know, certainly from a certain provider perspective is, you know, we really need to guide um, to guide our, our patients very closely with the data that they're suddenly being given. We can't just turn it over to, to companies that don't know healthcare. I, I hear that kind of uh, uh, yeah. prejudice, right, in, in their tone. Can you talk a little bit about that tension there? I mean, on the one yeah. hand, you may know the patients much better than even the providers know the patients, even though they know the healthcare better. Yeah. Well, let me be really um, crisp on one point. Um, uh, as a bet, we are um, we are clearly a spun off from Alphabet proper. So uh, I don't want to make I want to make it really clear, like your search results. Um, don't flow over, aren't powered by, aren't connected in any way. Your YouTube search, your playlist is in no way connected to what we do on our side of the house. So there's been a really um, strong distinction made to make sure that those data sets, the data flow, the platforms that are in use, et cetera, are different com platforms completely. So um, th that's step one. But I will tell you a couple of things that I think do make um, Verily and Unduo, particularly um, uh, ripe for an environment where um, consumer uh, and patient-generated data is important. Um, one is scale. And so um, a lot of times you'll see this structure and this discussion about how you're going to do this machine learning to help uh, members and patients, et cetera. Um, and in, in even we found this out some in the pandemic, some of the the technical infrastructure for those systems just weren't really ready for the push. You saw some telemedicine companies uh, not able to handle the volume, the bandwidth, all those kinds of things. So that part for us is, is a shoulder shrug. Um, we, we're particularly comfortable in whatever size and structure that we want to do and whatever ML and AI, whatever those requirements are. Again, all done with um, member consent or patient consent as we're doing this work and only on the data that they provided through the platforms that we put forward and they've given us sort of permission to. The second one I would say that's particularly, um, you know, related to our, our skills on that side of the house is the way we do user experience research and user experience design. It is not done from um, a healthcare per se perspective. It's really done from an individual or member perspective. And some of that DNA and even some of the teams that were recruited to work in this space are much more in turn in tune to the needs of the individual user because that is sort of the, the sort of the DNA and, and, and where that came from. 
And then the third one I'll put on the table is a lot of people talk about, you know, once a person has given them access to data or some providers given us claims data, like, you know, we can do interesting things from a data science, uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence perspective. But the fact of the matter is um, um, for a long time, the scientists and engineers on, on our teams have been at the forefront of that work. And um, really, literally wrote the book on a fair bit of what happens in that space in the first place. This sort of, um, um, you know, the, the tools like TensorFlow and others, many of those were, were um, developed by our parent company. And so um, um, we, are, I think, are particularly um, skilled and good in that space. And so um, it, it doesn't all translate, but I do think we, we bring a set of skills that maybe were well, I would say maybe underutilized or not even sort of focused upon if you talk about sort of the traditional approach that's been taken in uh, health and health IT. Right. Very good. So um, you, uh, you, you've talked about health IT and, you know, the, the other thing I think that's happened with the pandemic, it's, it's certainly uncovered inequities that are always there. Uh, but it also, you know, you couldn't ignore the headlines and it had then uh all political parties actually got a political tension and and bipartisan support of saying somehow we've got to fix this, right? So I feel like there's an engine, right? There's a push. Yeah. You're saying, you know, let's be careful how we fix it. Where do you see it going five to 10 years or, or maybe what your hope is if we get it right? Yeah, I think, you know, my best hope in this space is um, that we really get to the point where information flows the way that we would all like, which is at a time and a place of a person's choosing that the information is gathered for work to be done on their behalf. I would say the second part of it besides interoperability and, and information flow is um, I, I would hope that we get to this sort of holy grail of a learning system. Um, what I would say to you is that there are some limitations on, and both in the speed and what we can learn in our traditional evidence generation structure. So this idea that every question that we're gonna ask, we're gonna ask it only in the setting of developing a cohort and a comparison group and a randomized clinical trial to do a bit of work. Uh, and the output will be you know, X, X number of years down the road. One of the ways when we're talking about things like how to best offer a ride, for example, to an individual is just unlocking some of the real world evidence. So we don't want to, we don't want to um, use less scientific method, but we do want to use the technical infrastructure to accelerate that work. And in my mind, um, the, the, the world of the future where information flows and real world evidence helps us learn and make better recommendations to the next person, not in terms of 36 month and two year increments um, or even decades, uh, but actually in terms of days and minutes, much in the same way that much of tech makes better recommendations to you now. Your, your recommendations on your playlist today are better than they were a year ago. Uh, you can't actually say that even um, you know, medical discoveries that happened a year ago in general practice. Uh, I'll tell one quick anecdote in this space, and, and this this goes back to this idea of what I want to see happen in the future. When I joined ONC, I, I had access to a bunch of resources, and one of them I asked some of the research teams to find out um, how quickly medical information was going from discovery and into general practice. Because I remembered many years ago, 
um, reading that that timeline was somewhere around 16 or 17 years from a discovery, for example, like use aspirin um, and and uh, people who have chest pain, uh, who you're fearful of an MI would actually be in practice for most of the settings in the country. And the timeline at that time was about 17 years. When I asked my team to do the research, they said it's the same. So in, 20, in 2016, we were still with this really long lag time. So what's my best hope? If we find out next week that this intervention is a great intervention, um, I don't want to have to depend for that doctor to go to a CME conference uh, and, you know, six months from now and then forget to use it for a little bit and then have it come to their thinking again or for some smart CMIO at a health system to wait for programmers to get the idea to make a recommendation, a clinical decision support tool. Those things, as we learn those things in healthcare, that to me would be an amazing thing. And I, I don't think it's um, so much of a pipe dream as um, it's just work that we have to do to get to that point. I, I love that concept. I, and, and maybe I'm, I'm putting it in my own words here, but but it sounds like let's let's not think about, you know, how we get results to doctors or data to doctors or information to doctors, usable information that they can use for care. Right. Uh, let's not think about that as a separate project that we have to do, but use the world as the laboratory. Right. Use use what's going out there and the data that's flowing as the laboratory. And absolutely and turn it right it on. Uh, Absolutely. I have a, I have a um, mentor, Rob Califf, who um, uh, was FDA commissioner and worked with us at um, Verily, works with us at Verily. One of the things that he talked about was this sort of idea of real world evidence. I can, I mean, everybody has a few examples of something that went well in trials, went into the real world, and then we found that there was some unexpected consequence, whether it was, um, you know, cardiovascular with some of the non-steroidals that were given, a Voltaren or something like that. But we all have some examples that kind of fit that metric. And wouldn't it be great if the structure was, there's only so much you're going to find out about a cohort of 500 or 1,000 people in a drug trial. But when we put this in the real world and it goes out and 20 million people are using the drug, are we using the power of analytics to find the things that we couldn't find in the smaller study? Are we actually directing people in the ways that they should go to, to, to have a great outcome and live their best life? I think that is, in my mind, the holy grail because um, part of the discovery point early is to very clearly and cleanly isolate this thing that's being tested. Like that is the whole point. The whole point is to know whether or not this particular molecule in isolation does this thing. But the real world is more complicated than that. And so there is a second question that gets answered, but we don't always have as much rigor around answering that second question. And I would love to have a world where that was just a standard way of, of doing things. And then, so then the part two is much of what we're talking about testing is stuff that is like um, the risk benefits are, you know, they're kind of lower, like whether or not an Uber for you or a Lyft for you is the right way or whether or not a network at your church is the right transportation strategy or whether, I mean, figuring out how to match interventions with individuals when you're talking about some of the social determinants pieces um, could be very effective, could have um, effects similar to some of the things we study very closely, as you know, the, the literature says that. But we're also not structured 
to answer those questions in the kind of way that would allow us to say, definitely, you know, for, for this particular individual, this is the right intervention. If it's if it's one of those uh, what I would call um, peri healthcare, you know, supportive decisions that we're all trying to get better at. Right, and and what I love is this all comes back to um, if you've got uh, masses of data from real life data Absolutely. that you usually make your decision, then there's less chance of inherent bias. There's less chance that a group of Absolutely. clinicians are going to design a, 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 a test case, you know, a, a testing a clinical test around a, a preconceived notion, right? Like you get Absolutely. away from uh, any kind of individual driven ideas, right? That's great. That's great. So this has been a terrific conversation. Uh, before we leave, uh, Doctor, would you like to uh, point us to any resources that, um, that that some of the listeners may be interested in some of the issues you talked about today? Yeah, well, I'll just point out a, just a few things. Um, I, um, I, I think there's a fair bit of work that is still coming out of ONC. Uh, Mickey Trapathy is um, obviously now the national coordinator. He and that team are thinking deeply about some of these issues around interoperability. You know, we talked a little bit before about the 21st Century Cures Act and some references, tangential references there and the transparency rules that are coming out. I think that's still a, a great source um, to, to look for support there. Um, we at Verily are stepping up our, our work in this space and being um, more out front about the, the activities we're doing. I would love for folks to, to, um, to, to tag in there and 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 uh, you know, so dig a little bit about around what we're doing and the work that we're doing in this space, particularly the work we're doing in in DEI and health equity. Um, but I think there are many great sources in that space about um, actions and activity, and um, it's just an exciting uh, time for the work that we've talked about here in the health IT uh, um, space in particular. Very good. Well, thank you. This has been a great discussion, uh, Dr. Vindo Washington. Chief Clinical Officer of the Verily Health Platforms Group and CEO of OnDuel. Uh, appreciate your time today, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right. This has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a weedy podcast where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. Find this episode and many more on our website, weedy.org. Thank you all for joining us and be safe. <laughs>